now. Guys, what I have for you this morning is not going to require a whole lot of mental energy on your parts. Um, we don't have much of that left, do we? Um, it all got sucked up in the, in the, in the celebrations. Um, what I do have for you is something that I hope that will allow you to just relax, um, recharge, and, and take a, a, a different look at the utter beauty of what this season signifies. I, I want you to be able to, I don't know, viscerally enjoy the, the, the message that is ours that we broadcast all Christmas long. What I have is three stories. Uh, one that's taken from my backyard, another that's taken from World War II, and another one that's just taken of the annals of romance. Um, and they all unite to say the same thing, or at least I hope you'll hear the same thing out of all three of those stories. Now, as for my text, here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that word, that endures forever. Guys, I think that many of you know that um, Susie and I, in a moment of real estate insanity, um, bought a house in Midtown about 18 months ago. Um, my wife likes to tell our friends that we accidentally bought a house. And, and there's real truth in that. It's, uh, uh, we never intended to have a, but we got one, and that's because we have grandchildren. Um, but, but be that as it may, I'll, I'll tell you more of that story if you're ever interested. But um, um, one, this house that we bought in Midtown, is, it's almost 100 years old. It's 95 years old and be, will be um, in, in, in 2025 will be 100 years old. Um, but one of the neat features of this house is something that's found in the backyard. It's this collection of jasmine. Um, and it's, it's a big collection. There's a lot of jasmine there. And, you know, it's, um, it's attached to a lattice. And it is so much of it that you can um, walk under it. I mean, just a couple of steps. Um, and, and for the moment, you're, you're walking in the midst of jasmine. Um, and in the spring, it produces these beautiful yellow flowers and of course the the fragrance is just is just something that you want to stay under that is as you walk through it but once all the the blooms are gone then that's the signal i guess for all the birds to arrive and so all the birds i mean the mockingbirds and the robins and all these birds start building nests in my backyard. I, I guess they do yours too, but um, uh, they know how insane 
the people are who own this house. And so they, um, they, 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 they make their nest here in my backyard. But the jasmine seems to be reserved for the redbirds, for the cardinals. Beautiful, beautiful birds. And so Susie and I would, would sit out there in the back, or I would, she would sit, I would be slaving. Um, but we would sit out there and watch this mother bird, this mother redbird, fly in and out of the jasmine, just back and forth just dozens of times. And we never really knew whether she was tending to her young or whether she was building her nest. But I will tell you that I had to chain my wife to a tree to keep her from sticking her lovely head inside the foliage to look at the eggs, you know? Leave those poor birds alone, you know? So, um, um, spring went on and, um, and we, I don't think we ever saw the eggs, but we did see the, the male red bird show up a couple times. I, I think he was there to supervise. Um, <clears throat> but it was just quite a thing to watch this mother bird in and out, in and out, in and out. Now, um, back to the lattice with the jasmine on it as you're walking through it. In, in the course of my working out in the backyard, I would walk under that jasmine, you know, just a dozen times. And every time I did, that little mother bird, that little mother red bird would just come squawking and screaming out of the jasmine. And I really felt bad about it. You know, that I was disrupting what was going on there. And, and I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to say to that red bird, now listen, bud, um, we're big fans. We love red birds far more than those nasty robins and, and mockingbirds. <laughs> we, we really enjoy and we want to, we, we want to, <clears throat> we want you to stay here. We want to protect you. We're, we'll, we'll fight for you. But, but then I was faced with how, how in the world am I going to communicate that to that red bird? Well, I, I would have to learn how to talk like a bird. And to do that, I would have to become a bird. And then having become a bird, I would have to seek out this little mother and go to where she is so that I could tell her that everything was fine. But as you well know, that would be impossible because I would have to go in the form of a bird to visit the birds. Um, here's my second story. This one comes straight from World War II. There were two young men, um, older teenage males, who were the best of buddies, and they were raised um, in the farmlands of Kansas. And when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, the two of them decided that they needed to go and fight for their country. Their names were Jerry, and by the way, I think this is a true story. 
Their names were Jerry and Hank. And so they both enlisted at the same time. And remarkably, they were both assigned to the same um, training facility. And then, even more remarkably, they, were, they got in the same unit. And so they fought side by side. Which was the very thing that they had hoped would happen, is that they could fight together as, as friends uh, that they had been all, most of their lives. Well, in one particular battle, um, it was a fierce one, and Jerry was hit pretty badly. And about the time that he was, the commanding officer um, called for his unit to head back to the safety of the trench that was behind them. And so they all scurried back to the, to the trench, and there, while in the trench, Hank could hear the groans of his buddy Jerry. And so he went to the, uh, the sergeant and he said, um, Sarge, I want to go get Jerry. And, uh, and the sergeant said, you fool, you're not going over there. Uh, he, he's going to die, and I've already lost one, and I don't want to lose two. No, you can't go. But Hank persisted, and um, finally, the sergeant, against his better judgment, said, okay, go on. So Hank left the, uh, the trench, kind of crawling on his stomach, until through all that muck and mire and he got to Jerry. About an hour later, Hank comes back to the trench carrying his dead friend. And the sergeant looked at him and said, you see there? I told you not to do that. I told you it wasn't worth it. He's dead. It just wasn't worth it. And Hank said, oh, Sarge, it was worth it. He said, when I got to him, he was still alive. And he said to me when I laid beside him, he said, oh, Hank, I knew you would come. Here's my third story. She was um, 15. He was 17 when they met. They dated all through high school. And so when they both graduated from high school, it was a surprise to no one that they, they got married. Well, about four years and two kids later, she was standing in her uh, kitchen one morning with a pile of dirty dishes in the sink and a pile of dirty laundry in the corner. And she said later, I, you know, I, I never really did know why I made the decision that I made, but I made it. She took her dish towel, she threw it in the corner, and she walked out. 
her little husband comes home to find the two kids alone and his wife gone. That night, she called. And um, the young husband answered the phone and said, Where are you? She ignored his question and said, um, How are the kids? And he said, in a way that his anger trumped his concern for her, he said, well, if you're asking if they've been fed, yes, they've been fed. I fed them. And I, and I, put, them to, I, I, I put them to bed. But we're all wondering just what you think you're doing. And with that, she hung up. But that wouldn't be the last of her phone calls. She uh, would call about once a week for the next four months. And by that time, this very sensitive husband now has, has come to realize that there's something very seriously wrong with his, with his marriage. And so when she calls, of course, one of the things that she wanted to know is, how's the children? And... Um, he would tell her that the kids are staying with the grandparents in the day and that he would pick them up and care for them at night. And then he would tell her um, how much he loved her, how much he wanted her to come home, <clears throat> and please, won't you come back to us? And then he would try to find out where she was. And every time the conversation turned to her whereabouts, she would uh, hang up the phone. So at the end of his rope, this young husband took their savings and hired a private detective to try and find his wife. And, in, and very honestly, it didn't take very long to find her. The, the private detective came back and said, um, She's in a third-rate motel across the country in Des Moines, Iowa. So the little husband borrowed the money from his in-laws and bought a ticket, a plane ticket, to Des Moines, Iowa. He took a taxi to this motel, if you could call it that, and he climbed the stairs to her third floor room. These kinds of hotels didn't have elevators. And, and if you'd have been there that night, you would have seen the fear in his eyes and the perspiration rolling down his, his forehead. He gets to her room and knocks on the door. She opens the door and he forgot his little prepared speech and he said to his wife, oh darling, 
we so love you. Won't you come home? She fell into his arms, and they went home together. A few weeks later, the kids were in bed, and uh, they were sitting together in front of the fire, and he finally worked up enough courage to ask her the question that, he'd, that had plagued him for months. And he said to her, darling, why wouldn't you come home when I told you over and over and over again that I loved you, that we missed you, that we wanted you back here? Why, why wouldn't you come home? And she answered him with a... Um, with a profound simplicity. She said this. She said, before, those were only words. And then, you came. Guys, do you see what all three of those stories have in common? It's about the coming. You see, folks, the message of Christmas is that God so loved the world that he came. And he had sent prophets before and the message had been available through them but now in Christ he came um, guys that coming was rich in difficulty and mystery and, and profundity. But if he was ever going to save his people, he would have to come. He would have to become like them. He would have to go to them. And he would have to plead with them to return. And folks, that's the big news out of Bethlehem. The big news is that God so loved the world that he came. And what we've just celebrated is the fact that he came. He didn't have to. But because he so loved, he came. For people as undeserving as we are. Oh, he sent prophets. But now, 
has come. Oh, the utter beauty of Christmas morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you remind your people of the simple profundity of what you have accomplished by coming for us. That perhaps in the past we have seen this or heard that, but now at Christmas we can celebrate that you have come for us. You've come to get us. You have in the person and work of Jesus Christ come for an undeserving people and have swept us out of our rebellion and into the arms of eternal love. Oh God, how, how rich and how mysterious is this thing called Christmas, and yet it boils down to simply this. You so loved us that you came. Again, oh God, would you enable us by the indwelling Holy Spirit to find ourselves falling more and more in love with the God who came for us? We ask all this, of course, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.